Okay, join me in Acts 26. It's historically been my custom to preach a, a resurrection sermon on Resurrection Day on Easter, but this year it happened to just be a great, in my opinion, resurrection text. So we're charging on with, with Acts as well as focusing on our Lord's resurrection today. So Acts 26, uh, 19 through 32. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for the feet of those who have brought us good news. They are beautiful. We thank you because the God of this world um, had blinded our minds to keep us from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of the risen Christ. But you, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Father, by the power of your spirit, will you quicken our own tired hearts that we may delight afresh in, in his glory and quicken our weary feet that we too may be ones who bring good news. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We stand for the reading of God's word. As Michael mentioned, the whole chapter is printed there, but we will read from 19 through 32. This is Paul's, the second half of Paul's defense before Agrippa. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer and that by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Felix, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time you would persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. <laughs> Growing up, uh, uh, I remember Easter. I think I was telling Nick this this morning, but my dad was a pastor and 
it was very busy, always had a lot going on, so we didn't spend as, expend as much effort as perhaps we, we would for Christmas in the external sort of celebrations, uh, eggs and, and, and hunts and those kind of things. Not saying there's anything wrong with that, we just didn't do those kind of things. But I remember going to Easter sunrise service, uh, going to Easter pancake breakfast, going to Easter morning service, and I remember celebrating Easter quite well in that my parents uh, focused our attention on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as I got older and even into adulthood and as I started getting into ministry and studying more, I found myself wrestling with the question, what does the resurrection really mean? I knew, yes, he rose from the grave. The death couldn't hold him. It's, it's very exciting. But that question, that why question lingered, or per- perhaps the what question. What did this event really accomplish? And here's what I've discovered is that the reason that answer didn't come very easily and it was elusive for me is not due to a lack of clarity on the teaching I had received, but the expansive nature of the question and the answer. That there's just so much that the resurrection accomplished. Any single summary definition of what the resurrection is and what it has done falls short. Any attempt uh, to, to define the resurrection in, in that way would just be one, one thread interwoven among many other threads in which the, the threads make up a much grander tapestry. So we could offer a few. The resurrection is the defeat of death. The resurrection is the proof that our redemption is accomplished or the proof that the wrath of God is satisfied or that the mission has been accomplished or that Jesus is Messiah, judge and king or that Jesus is God. Or we could say the resurrection is the fulfillment of the scriptures or it is the first fruits and assurance of our final resurrection or it is the first fruits of the new creation or it is the historical anchor of, of the Christian faith, or it is the beginning of the end, or it is the source of resurrection life for all who are united to him by faith now. You see what I'm saying? There's so much the resurrection did, and that's just a short list. So today, the thread that I want to tug on is the relationship between resurrection and proclamation. I see these two threads run parallel through the New Testament and particularly in Acts and in our text this morning, resurrection and proclamation. And of course, they touch us today as well, because we proclaim the same risen Christ that Paul proclaimed. And we find our rest and our hope and our assurance in the same risen Jesus of Nazareth. So if you remember from last week, Paul is making a defense, a much more theological defense, because Agrippa understands Judaism better than his previous uh, judges. And he he, he argues that Christianity is grounded in the same promises and the same general hopes from the Old Testament as the historic Jewish faith. However, the two faiths have diverged. And the point of divergence for him is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
as he said in verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Then Paul goes on and he claims to have encountered this risen Christ and that this risen Christ has commissioned him to go and to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And he does so, Jesus does so, in words that clearly allude to the great promises of Isaiah and the servant songs and and those specific promises that light would be proclaimed to the Gentiles. So for Paul, his mission, his proclamation of the gospel has become theologically, historically, and, and experientially intertwined with Resurrection with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So the first point to this effect that I want to draw your attention to is that to declare repentance is to proclaim submission to and faith in the resurrected Christ. To declare repentance is to proclaim submission to and faith in the risen Christ. Uh, We see this in Paul's own call as an apostle. After encountering the risen Christ, Paul, uh, he didn't delay to fulfill his calling. He says in verse 19, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He listened. He began right where he was in Damascus and then in in a... turn of phrase that alludes, I think, to the Great Commission, he then goes on to say that he preached in Judea and Jerusalem and to the Gentiles. And the content of his message, of his preaching, here is described in three ways, and each of these ways is is another way of essentially saying repentance. His message was a message of repentance. In verse 20, He was to preach that they should repent, turn to God, and perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. So his was a message of repentance, of turning from one thing to another. And then he says in 21, For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me, and it's no wonder that they hated him so much and that this message of repentance made them so mad because, of course, filthy Gentiles need to repent. But we Jews, we sons of Abraham, we are clean. We do not need to repent. But Paul's message is offensive and it says the risen Jesus is the point of divergence and that Yahweh chose chose his race, not as the sons of Abraham, but as the sons of Abraham who are sons by faith in Jesus Christ. Jew and Gentile alike. So all men everywhere must repent. Notice here how Paul's execution of his message relates to the commission that he received in verse 18, where Jesus tells him that his job is to go to the Gentiles to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light. There again, that idea of repentance, turning from darkness to light and from Satan, the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So repentance is is turning, turning from darkness to light. This is a stark contrast. There's no middle ground between serving the power of Satan and God. 
And it's important that we understand the nature of this repentance that Paul is proclaiming here because there is in our day a great deal of confusion about what repentance means. I saw a clip this week. This, uh, a man was uh, finally, after 30 years, he got caught and he admitted that he had murdered his wife. And I don't recommend perusing YouTube comments, but I was. And people, I was shocked to see how many people, some people were saying, this man is going to rot in hell. And I was shocked to hear how many people responded, but he admitted it, so he won't. As if getting caught and admitting to a crime you committed 30 years ago constitutes repentance unto faith. That he's good, he's going to go to heaven because he admitted it. We don't understand repentance. One more illustration of this. I I listened also this week to a a very intelligent, popular, politically conservative uh, satirist explaining his recent change where he now believes in God. And he talked at length about a shift from being spiritual and not religious to now appreciating the morality of Christianity. And a recognition of the values, the morals, the traditions of historic Christianity. And he talked at length about the power of prayer and the need to listen to God, which to him went mystically trying to hear the voice of God. I'm not condemning this person or saying he's not a Christian. Perhaps he's a baby Christian. But I didn't hear him say one word about sin or guilt or the Bible or a need for a Savior or the name of Jesus Christ at all. So it's important that we understand that this is not the kind of repentance Paul is talking about. It's not a mere change of mind about the existence of God or a mere admission of guilt. Paul's repentance is a repentance of transfer, of shift from darkness to light, from Satan to God. This repentance is a repentance of faith in the risen, ascended Jesus of Nazareth for the forgiveness of sins set apart and numbered among his people. It's the beginning of submission to his lordship. He says also keep do do deeds in keeping with that repentance. So we're also to be submitted to the lordship of Christ and all that he's commanded. And we continue to see this theme that that to declare repentance is to proclaim submission and faith in the risen Christ uh, toward the end, the latter half of this passage um, in the conversion or that Paul is seeking the conversion of Agrippa. If we jump down to 24, as Paul is preaching along, defending himself, Festus interrupts Paul somewhat almost humorously and shouts at him, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Of course, the message of promise of Messiah, of resurrection from the dead is, as Paul says, foolishness to the Gentiles. But it is life and light to those who believe. He thinks Paul has spent too much time thinking and not enough time in the real world, which to his credit happens. But you notice here, Paul really just brushes him aside. His speech is for Agrippa. In 25, Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Felix, but I am speaking true and rational words. 
For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Uh, Christianity, its teachings, the resurrection, they've never been a word whispered in a corner conversation. They're very public. They're known historic events. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that there were over 500 witnesses to the resurrected Christ, which 1 Corinthians 15 was written maybe a decade before. They could go find these people still. Jesus himself lived during the time of his ministry as a very famous public figure. Even today, the most skeptical admit that Jesus lived, that he died on a Roman cross, and that there was an empty tomb. These are public events not done in a corner. And so Paul is saying, I'm not crazy, Festus. Agrippa knows the events. He knows of Jesus. He knows the prophecies that I'm talking about. You can almost hear the urgency for Agrippa in his voice in in 27. He says, King Agrippa, you you do believe the prophets, don't you? I know that you believe. Agrippa's response in 28, Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time you would persuade me to be a Christian? Commentators go back and forth. Was Paul uh, Agrippa really saying, uh, I'd consider this with some more time? Or is he being sarcastic? Christian is a divisive word, especially during the time. Um, and he, and he, he's saying, it's never, it's never going to happen, Paul. You would persuade me to be a Christian, which I think is, is probably the correct interpretation. Um, but what is clear here is... Agrippa plainly sees what Paul is after. He plainly sees that Paul wants him to convert to Christianity. An accusation to which Paul uh, happily pleads guilty. In verse 29, Paul says, Whether short or long, I would to God, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. He's saying, yes, repent, come to the light, believe Jesus, receive forgiveness, convert to Christianity, Agrippa. Conversion is a word I don't use very often because I find it vague and confusing, but I actually think in this text it makes a lot of sense. What Paul is after is a change, a transfer, a shift, a conversion Agrippa and the others may not remain neutral about Jesus. They must reckon with Paul's claims that he is alive and he's reigning as the prophesied Messiah. And if he is, they must become Christians. This is more than just a change of mind or an adoption of a new viewpoint. This is life-altering transformation from darkness to light, from Satan to God, from disobedience to obedience. We see here in this first point that to declare repentance is to proclaim submission and faith in the risen Jesus Christ. 
And it's important to note before we go on, just for the, the sake of the broader narrative, that Luke concludes this section in 30 through 32 by pointing out that Festus and Agrippa and Bernice and everyone who's gathered there gets together and, and they may think he's insane. They may think he's a, some kind of fanatic. But they unanimously agree that Paul is innocent from a legal legal perspective. He hasn't done anything deserving death or imprisonment. And if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, they would let him go. Uh, Craig Keener mentions also, I think that this is helpful, that uh, this is probably something of an official declaration. You remember Festus was trying to decide what to write to Caesar. This is probably what they wrote. (laughs) We don't know, but he appealed to you. So here he is. Moving on, then the second point I want to draw your attention to in this text is that to proclaim Christ is to labor in the authority and protection of the risen Christ. To proclaim Christ is to labor in the authority and protection of the risen Christ. Throughout the time of his ministry, the same God who made all the promises to the fathers has been with Paul, protecting Paul as he proclaims him. In verse 22, Paul says, To this day I have had the help that comes from God. So I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would have said would come to pass. There's an echo here of what Jesus said to uh, Paul in his commissioning, or, or rather to the disciples in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Safe to say that crucified, dead, imaginary saviors don't commission apostles. They don't go along with disciples, giving them strength to accomplish their mission. Through all that Paul has endured, God has been with him so that he might proclaim about him. If we back up to Paul's own commissioning, again in verse 16, we see that Jesus himself said this would happen. He says to Paul, Rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to these things in which you have seen me and to those in which I appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. We must remember this, that in our own mission to spread the gospel of faith and repentance, we don't do it alone. As the church, we're enabled and empowered and commissioned by a risen king who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. And I think there are few truths in this book of Acts that stand as proud as this one, that nothing, nothing at all stands in the way of King Jesus and his mission. It's interesting in the next chapter in 27, we'll see Paul's commission to go to Rome is threatened by the, the, the angry waves of the Mediterranean. But we'll also see the risen Christ fulfilling his promises and seeing Paul through the tempests on his way to Rome. And just as the disciples said about him, even the wind and the waves obey him. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So to proclaim Christ is to labor in the authority and protection of the risen Christ. The third point this morning is that to proclaim the apostolic gospel is to speak the word of Christ. 
To proclaim the apostolic gospel is to speak the word of Christ. Verse 22, Paul says, I stand here testifying to both great and small, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. The Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth, the man, is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Savior and King. And some would say and, and said, what kind of Messiah King is this who dies a humiliating death of a criminal? To the Jews, this is a stumbling block. To Greeks, this is foolishness. But Jesus' Messiahship is ratified here by two facts. First, the humiliating death of a criminal was prophesied about the Messiah long ago. That's why Paul says he must suffer, just as Moses and the prophets said. Just as an obvious example from Isaiah 53, just a few highlights. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Stricken for the transgression of my people, he says. He says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. So the Christ had to suffer. A mere uh, military savior, a, a political figurehead, was not a sufficient Messiah. Neither was a mere moral example a sufficient savior. He had to suffer. What Israel, what the Gentiles, what we, what every son of Satan needs is reconciliation with God. By forgiveness of sins, which could only happen by the shedding of his blood in our stead. The Christ must suffer. Second, his messiahship is ratified by his resurrection from the dead. The, the death and suffering of, of Jesus of Nazareth and the likeness of, of Isaiah 53 means nothing if he didn't also rise from the dead. Many people have suffered and died. Many people have been crucified. But only one was raised from the dead. And because he was raised, there now can be no debate. In Paul's mind, uh, also his resurrection is only the beginning. He says he was the first to be raised from the dead. And the heart of, and center of his argument and, and of his existence is the resurrection of the dead. Notice how central the resurrection has been for Paul um, throughout his defenses before the Roman rulers. If we back up to chapter 23, verse 6, he says, It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And 24:15, having the hope in God which these men themselves accept 
that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And Festus identified this, the centrality of the resurrection in 25.19. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. 26.8. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now he calls him the first fruits to rise from the dead. And this is just a sampling. And if you look through these texts, you'll see this is just the explicit references. But over and over again, there are implicit references to the living risen Christ in his defense. It's absolutely central to his apostleship, to his gospel, to his life. So if the resurrection happened... Jesus is the promised Messiah. There can be no, no debate, and therefore all men everywhere should repent and turn to him. For Paul, the, the resurrection is at the very core of his mission and his proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles. And in fact, as he is fulfilling his calling, as we see here in verse 23, um, he, he functions as the very mouthpiece of Christ. Christ is speaking through him. Notice what he says in 23. By being the first to rise from the dead, he, Christ, would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. The risen Lord Jesus Christ, by his very resurrection, proclaims light to the Gentiles and to the Jews. And yet, if we back up to Paul's own commissioning in verse 18, it's a part of his mission and commission to proclaim light to the Gentiles. He says, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And if we back up further, even to Isaiah, as we saw last week, this language of proclaiming light to the Gentiles comes from Isaiah's servant songs. I will give you as a covenant for the people from Isaiah 42, 6 and a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm captivated by this idea that is presented to us that if, if we long to hear from the risen Christ, if we long to hear the risen Christ speak a word to us, we need only to turn to the apostolic gospel. Paul preaching light to the Gentiles is one in the same event and action as the risen Christ proclaiming light to the Gentiles. Because the risen Christ has chosen to speak his word by the power of the Holy Spirit through his apostles and through those who would proclaim the apostolic gospel. So if you want to know the risen Christ that we celebrate today on Easter, you will encounter him in the very words of his apostles and in the scriptures. If you desire to commune with the risen Christ, you will find him in the pages of Scripture. If you desire to spread the life and light of the gospel to your friends and neighbors, you will share the apostolic gospel of repentance and faith 
in the risen Christ that has been given to us and passed down from the apostles. So to proclaim the apostolic gospel is to speak the word of Christ. I'll just leave you with this thought that neither you or I will ever be able to grasp the fullness or the richness that the resurrection means for us. It's not that simple and it's that much more glorious than we can comprehend. But as we have repented, as we have turned away from darkness and from Satan, as we live and labor in the protection and authority of the risen Jesus, and we hear him hear hear and speak the word of the apostolic gospel, as we do those things, we live with open eyes in the light of his presence. Amen.